I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you, as ever, by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland, and joining me are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Kildare, Ireland. And in today's episode, we will be talking about Nepal, a small landlocked country in South Asia. Nepal borders China in the north, India in the south, east and west, and Bhutan is separated from it by the Indian state of Sikkim. Home to eight of the world's ten tallest mountains, including Mount Everest, this small nation has an expansive and complex history and was only declared a republic in 2008. Today, Nepal is home to over 28 million people and has a total land area of around 147,000 square kilometers or 56,000 square miles, making it roughly the same size as Greece or the US state of New York. Aside from Mount Everest, Nepal is famous for its strong military, exemplified by the Gurkhas, who played an important role in both world wars, as well as one of the world's most recognizable flags. So, shall we start out very quickly by um, talking about some stuff that we are looking forward to talking about in this episode? So for me, Nepal has many, many things going for it, but it also, uh, particularly in the 20th century and even today, receives quite a lot of aid. And what I've enjoyed is actually some of the forms uh, that that aid has taken, which weirdly has followed uh, stereotypical national lines. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that a bit. I'd say Nepal's really top of the world in a lot of things, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, oh, terrible. Oh, that's unforgivable. For me, reading about, say, the 1800s Nepal is like reading some spectacular fantasy novel where there's all these different terms you're unfamiliar with for religious groups and there's warlike races sweeping in from the east or the west to displace the dynasty. Um, And as someone who's not really looked at this geographical region historically before it, it could be it could be game of thrones or something like that where you you have to learn all this terminology and learn all the interdependencies between groups as you go and it makes it really quite fascinating uh part of the world and i'm looking forward to talking about that 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 that's something that's probably worth worth staying on for a second because the, the, the history of nepal is very very complicated we're, we're, yeah. we're gonna it we're is, gonna miss things it's so dense. we were discussing it's just before so we started dense. recording just so everybody is aware that I, I think for my money, and I don't know how you guys feel about this, that this Nepal is probably the most complex place we've ever uh, tried Definitely to talk about. the most complex per square kilometer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, it It's so complex that normally we consider places like this, and if we realize they're this complex, we actually say, maybe it's too complex. Yep. <laughs> and we, uh, we don't we, do we that because duped. too complex. Uh, <laughs> we, <were laughs> duped. we thought yeah. it was just going to be, you know, some nice stupas and mountaineering and maybe some buddhism 
turns out a lot more Hinduism than I thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's complicated. Yeah. It's extremely complicated. And a thousand words you've never heard of yes. before. Yeah. Uh, all of on quick succession. So, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. As, a, as, a, as a warning, I guess, up the very top, we are going to do our best to uh, to try to untangle all those knots, um, as it were. But, uh, but we, we're going to we, miss some stuff. We're going to miss some stuff. We're going to get some stuff oh, wrong. A lot of stuff. Uh, and we're going to probably skip over some stuff that's, if yeah. you're uh, Nepalese historian you're probably going to think is 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 sacrilegious but for the average person we're going to do our, our best to, to kind of condense the, this as much as we can for the average us yeah uh, yeah for, for the average chud like mm. us uh that, that's this is the best we can but do. i suppose something i thought was reminiscent of, of switzerland in some ways and again this is a mountain kingdom is how you get all these distinct pockets of cultures that are limited to a particular valley Mm. and the complexity makes a lot more sense if you think about the geography and how these are you know there's a little habitable bit and then there's an intense mountain range and then another little habitable bit of course they speak different languages and different religions and at some point when you try to bring them all together into one country because that's modern state building it's messy but i think it helps to think about it in terms of of the much deeper history of how, of course, there's lots of co- complex interactions going on. Sure. Um, probably probably worth mentioning as well that we did an interview also for oh, this yeah. episode. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I spoke to a, a former colleague of mine, uh, a, a good egg, a guy called uh, Milan Rai, who uh, lives here in the UK now, but is originally from Nepal. Uh, and I had a, a good chat with him uh, about just kind of, you know, his, you know, what he knows about Nepal, uh, culture and whatnot, but also getting into kind of some of his uh, views on, uh, I guess, modern Nepal and changes that that even he's seen in, in his life. Uh, but we're probably going to put some of that in later towards the end of the episode because mm-hmm. it's more modern sure. focused. Um, since neither of you guys have been nice enough to ask me, I'm just going to say what I'm looking forward to talking about <laughs> is uh, the flag, which is one of the, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, one of the most unique and strange flags that you'll ever see anywhere. Yes. Yeah, definitely stands out and among our flag talks. So I'm looking forward to getting That's getting an to easy that. table quiz one. Mm. Uh, yeah, which flag is not a rectangle? Um, so, yeah, shall we get to our early history? Go for it. Let's do it. All right. So, how early do we go? Well, did they write yes. things down? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit about geography and stuff uh, to start out with. So, we've already somewhat mentioned for a relatively small country, uh, Nepal has has a huge amount of geographic diversity. You probably would think about it in terms of somewhere like Lesotho that we've talked about before, in terms of uh, being an extremely high country. But actually, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Nepal features tropical plains, which can go as low as 60 meters above sea level or 194 feet. So basically at, at wow. sea level and also features some 90 peaks that are over 7000 meters or 22000 feet, including, of course, our highest peak, uh, which is Mount Everest also known as Sagarmatha in the local lingua franca. That is 8,848 meters or 29,000 feet, uh, roughly, and rising all the time. Oh, yes, of course, because mm. it's a growing mountain range. Yeah, the Himalayas, speaking of, formed about 10 to 15 million years ago when the Indian subcontinent uh, collided with the continent of Asia and pushed up all the land, forming the modern-day Himalayas. Yeah, H- Himalaya, really interestingly means something really pretty simple it okay. means basically snowy so uh, it's a All sanskrit right. word hima is snow and alaya is house yeah. so 
snow house. A boat of snow. Nice. Um, I mean, there I is mean, an awful lot of snow there. It, it sounds more poetic in Sanskrit, but it mm. is just like, what do we call those things? Well, pretty snowy up snow there. Yeah. <laughs> That's where all the snow lives up snow. there. <laughs> Nepal is also home to the so-called water towers of South Asia, speaking of the snow, featuring over 6,000 rivers, which are either mm. snow-fed or dependent on uh, rain coming down from the Himalayas feeding most of the, the subcontinent. Prehistoric sites of Paleolithic, Mesolithic, and Neolithic origins have been discovered in the Dang district on the Indian border in Nepal. Um, but okay. the most early inhabitants that are um, you know, well-documented in, uh, in this region were part of the Indus Valley civilization, which uh, most uh, history buffs will have heard of. Um, but if you haven't, the Indus Valley civilization was a Bronze Age civilization in the northwestern regions of South Asia which spread across an area from present-day northern Afghanistan to western and northwestern India and is one of the great early civilizations. And we're talking kind of contemporary with with like Mesopotamia and Egypt. Yes, that yes. That kind of They're, period of uh, fertile valleys and... Culture getting supercharged. Yeah. Uh, it's also possible that... Uh, Dravindian people who primarily settled uh, the areas in South India and whose history predates the onset of the Bronze Age also established settlements in Nepal, but there mm. is not too much evidence to support that theory. So we're going to move swiftly along. But, right. but, but it, suffice it to say that like all of the kind of cultural influences that are kind of the forerunners of Hinduism and the Vedic religions are sort of swirling around parts of Nepal early on. Yeah, that be agreed. That be fair, so like, there's cultural relationships back and forth across what is now Western India, Pakistan, yep. Nepal. But uh, yeah, some of the first well-documented tribes in Nepal are uh, part of a, a group called the Kirat people, who arrived into Nepal from Tibet uh, roughly two thousand to two and a half thousand years ago, and moved into the Kathmandu Valley and southern parts of Nepal. And they took the valley from the Gopals or Aborihas, who were both believed to have been uh, cow herding tribes, nomadic tribes who were who were in yeah. the area at the time. Cowboys and Indians. No, Ooh. never mind. Oh, oh, no. That doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Um, they would form a part of the Kirat dynasty, which, according to ancient scriptures, is believed to have conquered the valley around the 6th century BC. Uh, and that is where I'm going to hand it off to Mark, who will talk a little, maybe a little bit about the Kirat dynasty and then, um, you know, onwards up to uh, some more modern stuff. Oh, God, help me. I'm going to try. Yeah. Uh, give it a, give it a, give your best <laughs> college so try, Mark. Like, yeah. There's so many gods um, available to help you in this part. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to mention, I guess, that um, something that made it quite hard to research is that point that there isn't a Nepal yet. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is just like... Uh, somewhat uh, geographically associated tracts of land yeah. and while there might be one dynasty there for a while it doesn't mean they don't overlap with several other dynasties just in other parts of what would become modern day mm -hmm. nepal so these are just kind of the the the, the biggest mm -hmm. dynasties of that time in the general nepal area because nepal will eventually uh basically be most of the himalayas for a short period but it, it kind of is always centered like the, the word Nepal refers specifically to the Kathmandu Valley originally. So I, yeah, it'll always I think, be in and around right. that space, and, but it grows and shrinks over time. And and the kind of the the cultural distribution also to an extent kind of matches the differences in geography. Mm -hmm. It's it's probably worth mentioning that at least in terms of my understanding, obviously Nepal is complicated in terms of geography, but essentially there's three bands of land. Mm -hmm. 
there is the 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 mountains at the top there's the plains at the bottom the valley in the middle uh and that that's kind of how the country is geographically separated and the kind of cultural separation to a greater or lesser extent kind of mm, tracks with that over time um with you know you know the the plains obviously a lot more farming mountains a lot less mm-hmm. uh, so that it kind of also dictates uh, what they kind of economic drivers and stuff but uh, back to the 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 karat culture which i've also read as the curata culture and the karanti culture because uh it wasn't written down in english because they didn't speak english so these are all poor right. translations uh, <laughs> we will we will come across uh, but, that a lot uh, i think uh yeah so oh god mm-hmm. yeah so my my understanding was that they they were a kind of um Compared to the Gopal uh, who came before them, they were a you know a much more much more recognizable culture in in terms of what we would uh, understand that as uh, they would last for seven hundred plus years um, up till about three hundred AD. What, what do you mean by recognizable, Mark? Like cities and temples and that kind of thing. Uh, a, a little bit more of that, and kind of you know taxes and okay. a little bit more writing stuff yeah. down and things like that as well. Kuratis came from eastern Nepal and a fellow by the name of Yalambar was the first king of the Kurat dynasty. I think maybe actually you mentioned him, Luke. Um, and this is in the rule of the seventh Kurat king who was called uh, who, uh, Jite Dasti, uh, a fellow by the name of Gautam Buddha. Uh, he was either born or at the very least uh, extensively visited Nepal. Mm. Uh, I think that generally it, the view is that he was born there in a place called Lumbini, um, which is a modern Nepal. And, uh, but I have also... I've heard that uh, there, there is some debate about like Lumbini and it being a part of India or a part of Nepal. And it's 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 currently a part of India. Is that is that correct? Uh, I, I think Lumbini is no, modern Nepal. Okay, it's currently in Nepal. But I think he was raised elsewhere in a place in India. Maybe I, I I didn't read extensively on this, but maybe it used to be a part of India or something. I or, think if you were an Indian Buddhist, you would definitely want to claim it. Yes, for sure, that's the idea. Yeah, it's 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 definitely I think a bone of contention, which we we, we should mention. But uh, and then drop immediately. Yeah. Um. But uh, I mean, there's also kind of just because he was definitely there, and and you know, B- Buddha follows a similar kind of semi-mythical trajectory of, of 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 other founders of religions and that you know we think there was probably a guy we think he was probably alive in a certain period the exactitudes of that how confident we can be in any historical record mm-hmm. is is probably up for a bit of debate um but he was around this generally in this general time um the indian emperor ashoka uh, he visited Lumbini uh, and he uh, created these uh, Ashoka pillars mm. uh, to mark the birthplace of Buddha. So there, there are kind of historical markings of it, but they weren't necessarily contemporarily done. The next dynasty to come along were in about 300 AD and they were called uh, the Likavi or Likavi. They established themselves in the valleys, so the kind of Kathmandu valleys, uh, but they had a clear influence from northern Indian cultures and contemporaries of the time. Um, the first substantial inscription of their culture dates from about 465 AD ugh, and describes how the king persuaded his mother not to end her own life after her husband died. Ooh, Sati. Uh, which was the style at the time. It, it is Sati. We, yes, should, we, should, dis- we should explain that. Burning. That's going to come up a lot, unfortunately. It's w- widow burning, uh, essentially. You, you've got a spare woman there, so. But 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 it. often, That's like, good. and I I I know I'm using this term very loosely, um, but often 
quote unquote voluntarily. Well, I mean, it, there's a lot of cultural expectation yeah. in there, and I, actually, I do vaguely recall in Japan, in Japanese culture, there's a not dissimilar tradition mm-hmm. of 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 older widows, I think, killing themselves potentially on mountaintops or throwing them off yeah. cliffs or something like no, that. No, and, and I mean, so pharaohs they, they, were it, often it, buried with their wives who were not dead yet. Yeah, it, it's really odd thing that humans seem to have decided to do independently in a lot of places but in places of a hindu tradition it seems pretty to have been pretty prevalent and still occasionally turns up in rural india to these days um it's illegal everywhere to kill yourself yes please let's on your husband's funeral pyre but uh people still insist on doing it sometimes so uh but particularly among the upper classes it's the honourable thing. If that's what seen as yeah. what kind of the honour code is. Yeah. Um, so other things about the KB, um, they would occasionally have dual monarchs. Um, the KB were also primarily Hindu, uh, but didn't seem to be aggressively opposed to Buddhism. So Buddhism, you know, they they were Hindu predominantly, but Buddhism wasn't you know trounced upon. Mm-hmm. It wasn't uh, aggressively resisted. Um, it does seem like the Lakavi used Sanskrit as their main language, mm-hmm. uh, and Sanskrit is frankly its own podcast. It's kind of a, uh, my, I yeah. always think of it as kind of the, the Latin of, of South Asia, yeah, uh, and progenitor of many languages and, and words that we all know. Um, I looked up a few just for for trivia's sake, including Avatar, Candy, and Orange. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of the the one of the oldest Indo-European languages still in use, I suppose. Hmm. So I mentioned about the, the Lakavi and their kind of influence from India. Um, but it seems like the marrying patterns um, between the Lakavi and people in North India kind of suggests that the people of North India saw them kind of on par. Mm-hmm. They weren't seen as like the poor cousin or anything like that. They were, you know, they were relatively well to do in their own right. Um, in the mid 600s, uh, Tibet began to become a, a real regional force. This helped to bring a lot of uh, extra importance and economic activity to Nepal because Nepal was the bridge between India and Tibet slash, uh, in later years, China. In 624, the local Lakavi monarch was ousted and he fled to Tibet looking for help. Tibet obliged. Um, and as a result, Nepal came under the influence of Tibet in a big way. Um in 647, a Chinese envoy was mistreated by an Indian ruler, which led to a Tibetan, Chinese and Nepali uh, reprisal on on India. Uh, but the Lakavi themselves kind of died out in the 700s. Um, this was followed by... Could, could I interject sure, something there, Mark? Sure. I, I just came across something that I thought was interesting around the 700s as well, where um, a kind of Buddhism developed in Nepal among the Newar people. That was very yeah. different to what we would think of as like standard Buddhism, like the Ther- Theravada Buddhism that, you know, with the, right. with the monasticism and the begging monks and all that stuff. And yeah. their version of Buddhism had non-celibate monks and it had a caste system yeah. and patrilineal caste system, very like the Hindu ecosystem that went before it. So yeah. that was the... The, actually, the primary the primary form of uh, Buddhism in, in Nepal from that period onwards, for, you know, for about thirteen hundred years up until the twentieth century, was this quite distinct form of Buddhism that seamlessly 
kind of live side by side with um with the more mainstream hindu beliefs i think that's kind of fascinating and it's probably why there wasn't as much conflict yeah because you know it kind of complemented it quite well and so to your point about the the caste system i mean i might be off and my understanding is there's, there's kind of a, a a dual track caste system in nepal one section of it being buddhist and yeah. the other being hindu yeah. but the buddhist tiers are the same by tiers. and large correspond yeah. yeah they correspond to the hindu tiers they're just called different things and with different kind yeah. of concepts and ideas and a lot of smaller ethnic groups were were kind of at various points in history sort of categorized as buddhist by the hindus yeah they're like oh yeah. your god that you worship is probably just some bodhisattva or something that's it's fine yeah <laughs> I mean, that's just to give you an idea of how complicated Nepal is. They don't have one caste system. They have two parallel caste systems. It's very, very complicated. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the Lakavia are followed by what is called the Nepal period. As far as I know, it's called that by, by the Newar people you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this starts in 879. And apparently there's, it's, there's not really a good reason why it is 879 is the year that they picked as kind of the, the birth of Nepal. Um, but I do know it is commemorated every year with a kick-ass motorcycle rally oh, uh, by nice. the Newar people. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of Isle of Man trivia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or, yeah, um, so in uh, kind of AD 1000 there thereabouts, there's a group called the Rajputs. Uh, they move into Nepal from Rajasthan and Western India, mm-hmm. uh, fleeing uh, Muslim invaders. And from these kind of Empire, semi-royal right? lines come the Thakuris or Thakuris, uh, who would be the royal line for, for quite some time. Um, in the kind of 1200 to 1300s, actually either 1200 or 1320, I've seen both dates, frankly, uh, Ari Mala becomes king, kicking off what would become known as the Mala period, which is the kind of a, a pretty long consecutive royal line which will lead up from you know early first second or third century of the second millennium up to like 1769 uh it's right. gonna last for hundreds and okay hundreds of years. that's uh um that's a pretty successful period of rule i would have thought uh if you can if you can manage to keep your, your, yourself and your kids in power for that long uh... Uh, Mala apparently means wrestler as well. Right. Well, I mean, um, paid off. He, he wrestled, wrestled, a f- wrestled that country into submission. <laughs> yeah. Um, so apparently the Mala dynasty saw the caste systems in Nepal become a bit more formalized. Yeah. I, I I think I read I read that it, there were social reforms, but what they meant by that was that they had a much clearer caste system. Oh, right. That was the social reform. Reform not, not from we would not call having a, social a caste reform, system to having one. Yeah. <laughs> in, from 1255, and for quite some time, there was a big rivalry within Nepal between two powerful families, uh, one based in the Tripura Palace, and another was the Bontas. And th- these kind of groups were like, you know, sub-royalty, let's say, you know, dukes and earls or whatever. Um, and the valley became, you know, frequently raided from outside due to reasons of their kind of internal competition. They would essentially kind of bring in some ringers and then uh, there'd be a bit of a bit of a schmozzle and then the world would move on. This is the Kathmandu Valley would be the seat the of, valley, seat of this. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, the politics were super, super toxic and really complicated. Uh, just one brief example. Uh, one minister in the late 1600s, his name was uh, Lakshmanarian Joshi. Great name. Uh, he, he, he was pretty good. He distinguished himself by seducing the queen 
arranging two assassinations before himself being assassinated in 1690. Um, so a lot of that kind of Game of Thronesy type stuff. Um, so I, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this Mala period. It's hundreds and hundreds of years and lots of backstabbing and Game of Thronesy stuff. I will quote directly from uh, one of the books I was reading. I'll, I'll give the reference later on. But uh, just to give you an idea as to how confusing it is to try to read about the detail of, of, of the history of Nepal. By the middle of the 18th century, Greater Makwanpur had again fragmented into four estates. In Vijaypur, Sen power depended on the Maithil Brahmin administrators, but even more in support from the Limbus of the Eastern Hills. The Limbus provided the military manpower and also a hereditary <laughs> chief minister while remaining autonomous uh, in their own lands. So, uh, Vijaypur clashed from time to time with neighbouring Sikkim, okay. the Tibetan prince, the Chagyal, had established himself in 1640. Well, obviously. What, what, what? Oh, geez, I mean, that's what Chagyals do. <sighs> Ch- Chagyal by name, guys. Chagyal by nature. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean... I, I can totally I understood that all perfectly in uh, at several occasions during several occasions researching this episode I, I, I would just read a sentence and then just like a, a gigantic question mark would appear over my head like what what did I just read what what do, what does any of this mean so <laughs> am I bad at history yeah. can you be bad at history because yeah. if I am can, can I be bad at reading comprehension is that is it is it just <laughs> is it me no I don't I don't think so um, when I read that line to to, to my wife, uh, she made a finger gun, put it in her mouth, and then pulled the trigger. Uh, she, yeah, cool. She, she does. She, she she's she's a loving a loving and dutiful wife, anyways. Mm. But uh, she she she's sometimes not some, the most supportive. She of, doesn't of listen to the show. I know that for a fact. She also does not listen to the show. No. Hey, yeah, just listen to you talk about it. That's yeah. enough. Yeah, that, that's her. That's her view. Uh, uh, so uh, almost finished this this section. Um, uh, the societies of this general period moved from taxation, a taxation model to a more feudal model, uh, with oh. farmers sending a large percentage of the goods onto the local, you know, head honcho. Um, but he would also then kind of parse out percentages of that income to his friends and well-wishers, um, which when I was thinking about it, essentially it's agri-futures, which is actually, you know, <laughs> no, it's feudalism, but it does actually, when you call it agri-futures, it sounds a bit, bit cooler, a bit more, uh, mm. more contemporary. Uh, they were also keen on slavery, mm. conscription, and being a funnel for Tibetan trade with India. That's going to keep recurring. Well, well, we're on Tibet, actually. Uh, uh, Nepalese Buddhism apparently was a big factor in re-establishing Buddhism in Tibet after the Tibetan Empire collapsed. Oh. So apparently one of the reasons that Tibet has such a strong tradition of Buddhism is because Nepal kind of rehabilitated it in, well, uh, in a form. It, re- it really caught on there. Well, yeah, indeed, uh. indeed. And um, the most Buddhist bits of Nepal are the, the kind of upland bits nearest to the Tibetan plateau. Mm. So that. In in the late Mala period, uh, there's lots and lots of trade and lots and lots of peace. Um, religious institutions were acting as moneylenders, uh, lots of internal trade, uh, southern grain from the plains for lovely pink Himalayan salt from the north. Ooh, apparently well, I, was, I like that stuff. It's good. Apparently, it's, it's not just pink and normal salt. There's actual <laughs> Himalayan pink salt. I just probably have never seen any, I suspect. Um, there was also some kind of famous woolen blanket, which I don't need to go into. As, as you well know, that famous woolen blanket that we all know. Hmm. Um, that, but that, so that's, there was, that's what got the British interested. Was it yeah. woolen blankets? Yep. Oh, dear, dear. That'll come back. The other thing I was going to say that I thought was really interesting was the trade route was actually really difficult to navigate. Um, so 
you couldn't do the mountains in the cold season for obvious reasons. Um, but in the warm season, the plains would fill up with mosquitoes with some kind of super malaria. So you had to kind of stage your transition through. But apparently the, the, the trade route was so lucrative that um, there was an Armenian merchant in 1686 who noted that uh, Indian merchants uh, trading with Nepal got about 70% to 130% on their investments, which wow. is bananas. Like this, like uh, multiplying your your investment by by that amount like double it and another half again pretty much um also just to mention that there was capuchin friars turning up in 1715 mm-hmm. and some muslims as well albeit in very small numbers um and also just among the kind of uh you know the the, the higher ups in nepal in this golden period um there was a huge pivot towards the arts and architecture, massive celebrations of kind of ritual and color and whatnot. And I was reading about this one guy who, uh, he's one of these kind of poet warrior kind of guys. And he would write plays, then he'd star in the play, and then he'd erect statues to the inspiration that led him to draw, uh, to write and act in the play. Oh, wow. Uh, So it was really like quite opulent, but very much focused on, you know, who's the artiest duke basically hmm. who's the artiest kind of higher up right. so um, i mean which the renaissance cool. or I'm, I'm not sure necessarily the 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 culture changed so much in that period but it was it, it yeah i guess you know competing on the basis of supporting artists was yeah that, that was kind of the model um and that's that's rather it Thing, things are pretty rosy for nepal so, so far great until we reach the mid 1700s okay uh that's i mean that's a lot of ground covered in our first mm-hmm. two sections yeah. so uh yeah thanks for that mark i skipped a lot uh, that's 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 gonna become a tradition in this episode yeah. okay uh we'll take take a quick break uh joe i believe you wanted to introduce some music that we're going to use in this uh yeah. in this break I, I did so the the new hours have been con- have been like the i think the malas were a new hour group so they've been kind of in control that's gonna stop being the case soon um so i thought I found this nice bit of new hour music, the story of a, a young woman whose recent husband, who she married within the last month, has declared he's going to go to Tibet for a couple of years to make your couple of hundred percent profit. And oh, she, wow. uh, she is very unhappy because she literally just got there. And I think it ends with her uh, committing sati and him coming Aww. back uh, a couple of weeks later and going, what? Well, I just I Ugh. I'm not dead. Nice. So um thanks Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Right, uh, so Joe, do you want to tell us what happened next in uh, the long and complex history of, of Nepal? Yes, I do. Okay. Strap in, Your guys. Turn. <laughs> this is going to be a, a century of fun. Okay. Uh, so Mark has just covered a millennium in about 10 minutes. Um, I'm not going to do as well. Uh, this is where the, the Shah dynasty come from. 
which ha- were the royal family of Nepal up until, oh, um, I think they're still around, but they, as Luke mentioned, Nepal has been a republic for a couple of years now. Hmm. So right. this is the dynasty that bridges us all the way from the 1700s to now-ish. Pretty good dynasty, as then. Pre- well, hmm. as, dynast- as dynasties go. Mm, they won't do I so mean, well in my section, I'll put it that way. No, I mean, <laughs> pretty long, long-standing, long but not well-treated okay. dynasty. Hmm. So right. much internal strife and murder. But anyway, uh, in 1743, Prifti Narayan Shah uh, comes to power in Gorkha, which is a kingdom, small kingdom, in the kind of west of Kathmandu, anyway, um, which is not that important a kingdom. He's from a line stretching back a couple of hundred years of, of Shah monarchs that have never put too much of a mark on the region, okay. but had aspirations. What would become a unified state under Shah was 54 independent states in 1743 when he started his project. So okay. various hill tribes and different valleys, including the Mala hegemony in the Kathmandu Valley. Um, and as I say, Gorkha was small. So Shah went off to Varanasi on the banks of the Ganges, Uttar Pradesh, to learn stuff, to learn about his neighbours, to learn about statecraft, and also to be given a big pile of guns by his father-in-law, Abhiman Singh, who was a Rajput chief down those ways. So, okay. um, yeah, he's procured firearms and a quantity of ammunition, which would be handy. It would take him till 1768, so we're talking a couple of decade long project, but eventually he would accomplish um, taking the Kathmandu Valley and sort of locking down the Kingdom of Nepal, as it would be called, after what that valley was known as at the time. Hmm. But to outside powers and to the British, it was called the Kingdom of Gurkha, most commonly. And okay. you've probably heard the word Gurkha as a military sure. term. But I did mention the British, so if anyone wants to... Ding, ding, ding. Hello. They're on the horizon, uh, poking around in India as we speak. Yes. We've got the snooting, boys. So, the way Shah conquered the Kathmandu Valley, which, you know, it's just so... If you want to read a novel about it, or a, a whole tome about it, you can. There was a lot of battles and so on. But important points, as far as I can tell, is that he, he economically blockaded the valley. That was the key tactic. Okay. He's not the last to do it. Yeah. Um, and one impact that would come back to haunt uh, Nepal was that the Mala kings started minting poor quality, quote-unquote, silver coins for Tibet during this period because they couldn't get access to as much silver as they would normally be sending to Tibet. Because oh, I, I read about how it was a great, great honour that the Mala kings were allowed to mint coins for mm-hmm. Tibet. I read, I read that I was like, that does, that seems boring to me. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the follow-up fact that contextualises the fact I read. Yeah. So they would become a bad agent and Ooh. that would be something that the Tibetans would want uh, compensation for later uh, after the, the unification of Nepal. Okay. Um. The blockading of trade and food eventually allowed him to succeed where his father failed in taking the Kathmandu Valley after the Battle of Kirtipur, which Shah won even though the East India Company, based in Kolkata, had sent help to the Mala kings, but it did not uh, pay off and the 
the uppity Gorkas from the hills consolidated Kathmandu into their, their new kingdom. And they were big on cutting off ears and noses. Um, there's lots of contemporary, uh, contemporary reports from the Capuchin oh, monks and yeah. from the from the East India Company people and mm. from from uh, Nepalese sources about that. So they were pretty gruesome. So um, Shah expelled all of those Capuchin missionaries he talked about, and was generally anti-Europeans uh, poking around in his in his country. Fair, fair enough. Yep. You know, uh, as the Princely Spoiler. states in India, one by one, were sort of pledging allegiance to the East India Company or being conquered right. in wars. It was a fair, a fair position. So Shah made wanted again. We were talking about Adamala's sort of institutionalized Hinduism. Shah was going down that path too. Uh, he declared his kingdom Asal Hindustan, which means the real land of the Hindus, as opposed to you know those depraved Mughal. Empire subjects in the south who okay. were r- ruled by Muslim Muslim Mongols feels a bit unnecessary, but yep. Um, and he would rule as a Hindu state with the Hindu social code of Dharmasastra as the sort of ruling thing, such as the caste system being fundamental. And most of the rulers, I think the Shah family and all of all of the military leaders within their kingdom would have been. Chetri, is that how we said we pronounce the word? Chitri. 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 Yeah. They were from the Chitri caste, which is sort of the administrative caste. So Brahmins are pre- um, priestly. Chetri are sort of more of warrior administrator. Yeah, kind of that, that, that was that's what was related to me, kind of like uh, war commanders. Yes, but, but yeah. moving into the modern period, that also includes governing. So that's kind of a, a feature of, of this this dynasty is the Chitri control of uh, of politics uh, to mm. the expense of other castes um, and other people. He described uh, Nepal as being a yam between two boulders because China's sitting on top of them and the emperor of the seas, is what he was calling the British Empire, uh, sitting right. to the south. Characterizing and, your, your um, country as a yam doesn't inspire confidence, I have to say. It's kind of yam-shaped. Sure. Maybe, maybe... But- Maybe it's positive, like uh, nutritious, uh, sweet, squishy. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so he was kind of pro being friendly with China and cautious of the Brits. So Prithvinarayan Shah died in 1775, um, having succeeded in creating this state. He was succeeded in quick succession by his two sons. One, I think, who wasn't a child. Uh, but then died, and the other who very much was a child. Sweet. Um, which is going to become a pattern that has not done the dynasty any favours. Mm. His brother, I think, became regent, so Bahadur Shah. Bahadur is a name that keeps turning up. Uh, it is from some ancient Mongolian word meaning hero, and everyone seems to be called Bahadur, so my apologies. Okay. So Bahadur Shah ruled until 1794, so he got about 20 years as regent give or take, until the baby wasn't a baby. And he had designs on a pan-Himalayan kingdom and wanted basically every hill kingdom he could set his eyes on to surrender. Did pretty good. In 1788 and 91, the Tibetan silver coin problem would come back to haunt them. Okay. Uh, Basically... Where's my money? In response, they were getting poor quality salt imports, which is important. Um, Okay. You need salt to cure meat and stuff. So 
yeah, in response to this poor quality salt and the Tibetan threats to invade Nepal, they decided to instead invade Tibet, which is you know, a strategy. Um, the first invasion was led by Kaji Domodar Pandey. So Kaji is like a minister, a government minister. He keeps turning up, Domodar Pandey, from the Pandey family. And Bam Shah, another relative of the king, it was settled with a, the Treaty of Kerong, where Tibet took responsibility for the invasion and would pay tribute. Uh, All right, pretty good then. And uh, a Chinese governor was sent to back up the Panchen Lama in the negotiations. So China had an interest in Tibet even back then. Uh, oh, Tibet, however, weren't oh no. good for the money. So uh, Pandey's army came back and they sacked the uh, Tashi Lunpo Monastery, which is where the Panchen Lamas lived. That riled up the Tibetans. They called on the Qing Chinese, like the Qing Empire, to yeah. help them drive the the pesky Nepalese back into the hills. They got into the Kathmandu Valley but could not get a decisive victory. There were internal revolts weakening the alliances within Nepal at the time, which meant it was quite a mess. It seems that one of those wars where everyone's in the same place, but then the weather is bad and the rations aren't good and nobody really moves. My foot's sore. Yeah. There's lots of mosquitoes. Um, I, th- I forgot my wife's face. I, I, I imagine the Kathmandu Valley is not a particularly fun place to fight in, like in in, no. a, in, any, in yeah. any circumstance. So particularly not against people who live there and know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, eventually the Chinese, after a few setbacks, just decided to come to a truce, um, right. and a treaty was signed between Pandey and General Fukangen. Uh, pardon me. <laughs> yep. Um, I don't always include <laughs> names, but excuse me, Jim. carry on. General, uh, and this would encourage good relationships with the Qing Emperor, where Nepal would pay tribute and China would in future defend their sovereignty. Spoiler alert: China mm. didn't, because Qing mm. China was really weak. Uh, this is the same dynasty that lost Hong Kong, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. So uh, China was not on its best days in the uh, late 1700s or the 1800s. Whew. Okay, back to expansion. So the Tibet thing was put to bed. Um, Bahadur Shah expanded across the Kali River into a few kingdoms over there. And they also went east and conquered Sikkim, which brought the borders of Nepal all the way up to the borders of Bhutan. 80 days classic, check it out. Mm-hmm. Very good Himalayan kingdom. Less complicated, more self-contained. We thought that was complicated at the time. Yeah, I remember. That's true. Oh, how young and naive we were. Yeah, Um, I'd take a dragon king any day. Yeah. Mm. The next period of time would be characterized by the the Nepalese failing to keep the British at bay. Sounds good. So fun new character, King Ranabad or Shah, was a baby, isn't a baby anymore. He decides that his ex-regent called Bahadur Shah, yes, that's confusing. Um, so King Rana Bahadur Shah kills, imprisons, and then murders Bahadur Shah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, he poured hot oil all over his uncle who had uh, ruled his his kingdom for him. Oh, God. Uh, he was apparently quite decadent and uh, spoiled and, you know, because he didn't have to do anything for, you know, his entire childhood. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, he's one of these except... like monarchs who was carried around and, you know, like never had to touch the ground or like, you know, yeah, see a peasant or elephants involved. Right. Um, so he you know, he married someone inappropriate. She was, I think, an Indian Brahmin widow, so wrong caste, wrong marital status, wrong nationality. Um, okay. 
technically illegitimate children if you go by the rules, which he didn't. Uh, he promised her child would be the king ahead of all the elder children who were appropriate. Bad move. Then she got TB and went into, it was told to go off and be a ascetic uh, to make her better. So she did and he quit the kinging, went after her, leaving baby King Girvan in charge. Mrs. King died. Uh, Ex-King went crazy. Um, started desecrating monasteries, which was kind of contrary to the being an ascetic oh, no, monk. Stop. Aesthetic. Yeah. And eventually, uh, when they wouldn't let him back to be king, he fled to British India to conspire with them to be king again. And he brought with him his chief bodyguard, Bimson Tapa, important guy. That's like a Star Wars name. It is. Uh, Bimson Tapa. If we think of all of this as Star Wars, it might be easier. No, Star Wars is far, far less complicated than this. (laughs) It's true. It's true. And Star Wars is plenty complicated enough. The East India Company used the fact that they had an ex-king sort of in captivity to threaten right. the current regents for the baby king Okay, uh, and get okay. a treaty with I them. Mean, it's kind of hard to understand how you would threaten and be like, we have a king here. It's like, what are you going to do <laughs> with him? We've got your crazy ex-king. We, we, we might kill him. Do you want us to bring him? back your crazy like, ex-king that's fine. or do you want to carry on with your sensible queen regents? Okay. That was the... Oh, threatening to send him back, not threatening him, just threatening yeah. him. That's, that okay. was my take. Yeah. No, no, they... they they were like, we control the situation. They were going to pull a, a, a we'll Lenin state on him. it. Yeah. We're going to put him on a train, send him to your yeah. capital, and watch <laughs> yeah. it burn. So, long story short, eventually he would go back to Kathmandu. The British resident would run away because people wouldn't work with him and wouldn't take bribes. Um, and the ex-king's half-brother would behead him in a quarrel in 1806. <laughs> A hefty quarrel. A hefty quarrel, yeah. yeah. Bimson Tapa, that bodyguard guy, then massacred everyone in the beautiful name Bandarka Massacre. It happened in the beautiful Bandarka Gardens down by the riverside. He basically massacred anyone involved in killing his, his boss. 16 right. women and 77 men, Ooh. all killed in the in the Royal Garden. Wow. Uh, including Domodor Pandey, who'd led the slightly pro-British faction and had invaded Tibet. Uh, and then he encouraged all of uh, the king's wives to uh, commit sati. Oh my god. Except his 14-year-old niece who had recently married the king and became regent to the 9-year-old new king. So Tripurasan Sundari was regent for about a decade to 9-year-old Garvin. So, yeah. Made himself prime minister and um, just carried on ruling. In so it was a clear point. out, basically. It was an absolute clear out. He's like he killed all of the rival families, had all the wives who could be regents kill themselves, and then became Muktiar, which is like the top man. Okay. Every royal must go. There was in a war with the British over border skirmishes, over trade, over wanting access to that sweet, sweet wool from the from the um, the blankets from the blankets, the, the stuff that Kashmiri yep. wool's made out of. There's a certain ah. goat that only lives in. Tibet and the only way to Tibet is through Nepal and cotton wasn't bringing in the, the money it used to for the East India Company so big war and in 1816 uh, there was a treaty that would cede about a third of Greater Nepal so Sikkim, Garwal, Kumaon, all those recent acquisitions yeah. that they've held for 10 to 30 years were became British Bimson Tapa managed to survive being defeated in, in a massive war with the British 
uh, and stayed on as Prime Minister. King Girvan made it to 17 before dying. Potentially poisoned. Um, okay. And when King Rajendra Bikram Shah, I think was his infant child, uh, grew up, he would eventually have the Bimson Tapa, the, the Prime Minister of the last 20 years, imprisoned and uh, have him kill himself. Oh, God. Um, because there was lots of accusations of poisoning against him, which were, I don't know, some of them were probably true. And basically he killed himself, but quite ineffectively, and so they left him to lie in that beautiful garden by the river where he had massacred everyone for five days until he was eaten by scavengers. Oh, Sweet. So, uh, wow. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, the Tapa and Pandey families kind of fought with each other for prominence. Um, the, the court had a lot of intrigue and it was all just waiting for somebody to step in and clean house, lock down, uh, <laughs> lock down authority. Yeah. Who would that be? Should we take another break? That was a very long I'm section. I'm sorry. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay, we'll take a we'll t- take a quick break, and then someone's going to come in and clean house right after this. <laughs> Hello there, listeners. I hope you're enjoying this Himalayan adventure. We're approaching the end of season four, and starting our preparation for the fifth season of the show. We've only come this far thanks to the support of our listeners, and particularly the generous support of those people who choose to back us financially. You hear their names listed at the end of episodes, they get to vote on location of our finale each season, and they get to help us chart the direction of this show to make it the podcast that you want to listen to. We have lots of plans for what we'd like to do next season, and if you want to be part of supporting that, I'd like to ask you to consider supporting us on Patreon. There are many different tiers that you can support us at, and if you go to patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast, you can see all of the rewards that we offer our patrons. As always, we should say, give only what you can. If you don't have the resources to support us financially, then maybe just tell a friend about the podcast or tweet about us and, and share your favorite episode. This podcast will always be free, but the support we get from backers really helps us keep going and keep making better and better shows. And now, back to Nepal. Okay, so yeah, as Joe mentioned, uh, the mid 1800s, early 1800s even, were a time of, shall we say, heightened uncertainty. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, in an effort to create a stable government, uh, a coalition ministry was formed in September 1845, headed by a guy called Fateh Jang Chaturia, who was uh, part of the Shah dynasty and a sixth prime minister of Nepal. Then a person uh, guy who we're going to hear a lot about called Jung Badur Kunwar, who later became known as uh, Jung Badur Rana and yeah. is one of the most controversial figures in Nepali history, emerges onto the scene. Ooh. I'm mostly going to refer to him as Rana, even though that name is not affixed to him until later on, but uh, it's just easier. And he's he's the first of this Rana dynasty, which is going to rule Nepal for um, around 100 years or so. But not as kings, right? Uh, just... Yeah. So de facto. Yes. But they are known as the uh, the Rana dynasty, I believe. Dynasty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so he came from a fairly undistinguished uh, Chitri family in Gurkha. 
And despite a prime minister having been appointed, the real power in Nepal at this time lay with a guy called Gagan Singh, uh, who was a general and a friend to the queen and controlled most of the military while uh, the prime minister controlled uh, the rest. So I I think um, he Mm. controlled seven divisions of the the army, whereas the prime minister controlled three. Uh, That's a thing that keeps showing up of like different how much of the army you control. De- determining your power which is a bonkers it seems ridiculous army. like i mean if you don't control the army you don't really control the state <laughs> so the queen was quite happy with this arrangement uh because she aimed to keep control so of the throne and guarantee that her son would rule after her and therefore control of the military mm-hmm. was key however on night of 14th of september 1846 gagan singh was mysteriously murdered at his home uh apparently he was shot in the back while he was praying um, oh. Suicide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, left a note and everything. Uh, Jesus Christ. It's, to me, given what happens next, it seems quite obvious what happened here. But uh, the murder, <laughs> murder apparently remains a mystery to this day, and and people still debate uh, oh, who, who might have done this. Was it Rana? It uh, like it Rana. <laughs> you you tell me what you think uh, after you hear what what happens next. So uh, the queen was furious because her you know her buddy in the military had been taken out. And she commanded the prime minister to assemble all the administrators in the royal court in the Hanuman Doka Palace. Um, the prime minister ordered his men not to let any, anybody out of the palace without the queen's or his permission. The queen oh, no. then started having a bit oh, of a no. public freakout oh, um, oh, and no. started throwing accusations of various nobles, demanding revenge for the general's murder. Uh, tensions understandably increased in in inside the the court uh, as she started to call for blood. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So one of the nobles in the court tried to force his way out and was killed in the process, which gave way to uh, bloodshed that took the lives eventually of around forty nobles. One of the generals is believed uh. to have written the word "ja" on the walls in his own blood as he lay dying, <laughs> suggesting that uh, Jung Rana. Uh, or Jung Badur, was the perpetrator. Uh, Many of the noble families Uh, died in the massacre, including the prime minister. Uh, Jung Badur, or Rana, used this opportunity to eliminate his rivals and uh, swiftly rose to power. He declared himself as the new prime minister and also chief of the army. Uh, And yeah, (laughs) in this massacre, which became known as the Kot Massacre, many of the noble, like heads of noble families were murdered, as well as many leading politicians leaving Rana basically uh, standing among the bodies. That's that's uh, that's why I say in the you know the the general who was murdered earlier, I you know I would be inclined to point my finger at, at Rana for for that. How dare you? But uh, well, whether whether or not he did it, he definitely He certainly uh, took advantage of the situation. To... Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Who benefited this day yeah. this guy a lot? Yeah. So he then began uh, creating a new nobility, a new noble class, uh, potential opponents who's Well you'd have to. I mean Yeah, because there's nobody left, no. basically. So um nobody left. Uh, potential opponents who survived his ascension to power were either killed or exiled. And the milis- reforming the nobility. Yeah, and the military was was kept quiescent by uh, juggling around of army posts. So basically he would he would like uh, appoint new generals or take you know, take bits of the army away from different generals and just basically not allow loyalties to develop to any one military figurehead. I, I, I know I didn't go into it in the previous section, but like that was a strategy Tapa used as prime mm. minister as well. It was like kind of appointing, you know, telling his family, you go conquer those few villages over there. And that was a thing that kept really annoying the British. Right. So, you know, 
using patron patronage is the word, you know, to kind of keep people on side. If you're good, you get shiny things. If you're bad, I'll take yeah. shiny mm-hmm. things away. Let's play a game called Make Me yeah. Happy. <laughs> uh, the king, well, or the, the, you know, the, the, the crown, I suppose, was made a, a titular figure. And the post of prime minister <coughs> was made powerful and hereditary, uh, securing Rana's so grip I... on power and establishing what was later uh, known as the Rana dynasty. That's not how prime ministers are meant to work. It's not really, but this is how uh, the prime ministership worked in in Nepal at this time. Um, Other prime ministers aren't just just not as prime as this. This guy is just extra. Yeah, this guy is the the Mm. primest of prime ministers. The primest. (laughs) Um, He could be an Amazon product. Yeah, and he uh, determined an order of succession uh, by seniority. So, like, uh, I don't think Rana himself had any kids, but he had brothers and and nephews and nieces and and this sort of thing and. So each eligible male heir would hold like a military rank and they were numbered. Okay. So number one was prime minister and commander in chief of the army. And then the next person in line was Western commanding general. Then the third was Eastern commanding general. And the fourth was Southern commanding general. And then the fifth was Northern commanding general, obviously. Um, and basically as, as the person at the top died, you just moved up a rung um, to where you, you, oh. so Almost like a, a a line of succession, I guess. Um, or the stonecutters. Mm. And I have a I have a <laughs> quote here from a, a, an author called T. Louise Brown from a book called The Challenge to Democracy in Nepal. And she just sums up uh, another one of Rana's very interesting tactics uh, in dealing with the, uh, the monarchy. So she says, uh, to complete the neutering of the monarchy as a political force, Jung Bador and his successors then implemented a cunning strategy First, the king and his family were physically supervised by the Ranas. Future kings, it was claimed, were introduced to lives of debauchery at an early and impressionable age. Satiated by vice, they would presumably be uninterested in and incapable of interfering in politics. Second, the political role of the monarchy was downplayed and the king was instead projected as Nepal's spiritual head and the incarnation of God, Vishnu. Third, and most importantly, Jung Bador established a tradition of intermarriage between the Shah dynasty and his own family. The policy gave formal yeah. recognition to the elevated uh, caste status of the Ranas and made the Shahs e- easier to manipulate and entwine the fates of the two families. This customary marriage alliance right. is maintained even today. So, uh-huh. yeah, Jung Badur Rana, the, the first of the Rana dynasty, was, you know, a savvy character, as we've seen. Uh, and he decided he was going to be, become uh, very friendly with the British because... He understood that, uh, you know, Nepal bordering India, uh, which was British controlled at this time. He knew that, like, you know, it was it was possible that uh, Britain could potentially look at Nepal and extending its influence into Nepal. So he wanted to kind of head them off at the yeah, path that they, way. They already had a resident living in Kathmandu. I yeah. Think, but who had been frustrated by the previous right. regime mm. a little bit. And so uh, Rana had an opportunity to... Um, Beyond the the winning side, yeah. Well, as a as a what, what was it mm. called earlier? Like the yam between two boulders. Would you like the stamp of Union Jack in this yam? Yeah, and alone. That's kind of what what the idea was. So in eighteen fifty, he visited Europe, toured around, and uh, was received favorably by both the French and British governments. He aimed to establish a direct relationship with the British government rather than go through India. Uh, so the British administration mm. there. On the nineteenth of June, he met uh, Queen Victoria. And later visited Parliament. Oh, yeah, boy. Uh, but his requests for a direct relationship between his government and the UK were rejected. 
1855, he kicks off a war with Tibet, uh, which was controlled by the Qing dynasty at the time. This war was fought between 1855 and 1856 in Tibet. He was aiming to undo some of the terms of a treaty that had been signed in 1792 uh, in a previous war between the two yeah. countries, which was not particularly friendly to Nepal. No, okay. but they were they were paying tribute to uh, to the Chinese yeah. emperor. So yeah, he, uh, Rana didn't particularly want to be doing that anymore. He's not the kind of guy that pays tribute to anybody. Sounds like. Using a perceived list of grievances, he declared war in March 1855 uh, and gave 17th of April 1855 as a date limit for his conditions to be met. So I thought that was quite interesting that he declares war first and then issues an ultimatum. <laughs> it's like, right. I'm going to, you know, I'm declaring war and unless you uh, you meet my, my terms, then I'm going to continue in a, in a state of war against you. Mm. I, I don't know. But anyway, in any case, his ultimatum was not met. Uh, he orders his troops into Tibet in April of that year. But shortly after, Rana began to realize that the cost of the war was going to cripple him, uh, as it was costing a lot more than he'd anticipated. Uh, he pressed for a peace settlement, and in February 1856, uh, a treaty was signed between the Prime Minister and Tibet. And this treaty was more favorable to Nepal than the treaty that was signed after the last war. And that treaty fixed the borders roughly where they've been ever since. Uh, next, he hmm. agreed to assist the British during the Indian Rebellion in 1857, which was also known as the Sepoy Rebellion. And in hmm. 1858, he gained his title of Rana. Uh, the, the, the king at the time bestowed the honorific title, uh, which was an old title denoting martial glory used by the Rajput princes in northern India. Oh, I didn't realize. I, I thought that was a family name. So it's no, kind it's of a, a, an, honor, an, it's honorific an honorific title. Name. Yeah. But uh, every every okay. succeeding prime minister uh, after him uses Used. the same yeah Rana title. It's kind of like Caesar. Or yeah, something. yeah. So like I sort of think of him as Rana the first almost, um, and those after him as yeah. You know, I okay. think there was seven in total. Um, but in 1877, Chung Badur Rana dies um, at age 59. I couldn't find out how he died. I assume of natural causes. But he is succeeded by his brother, known as, and I hope you're prepared for this, His Excellency Commanding General Sri 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 Maharaja Sir Randujip Singh Bahadur Kunwar Ranaji. Excellent. Uh, commonly known as Ranadip Singh Kunwar, Ranadip. the second prime minister of the Rana, Rana dynasty. I, th I think Sri is lord and Sri is also lord and Sri is also lord and Maharaja is like king and Sir right. is also lord. He's getting yeah, it's a, it's a it's a pretty amazing title, um, but I just had to include it yeah. the whole thing. Um, That's class. he was later assassinated by his nephews during a coup in 1885, and uh, sure. was succeeded by a different nephew, who uh, Beer yeah. Shamsher, <laughs> who was uh, his title was Commanding General Sri 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 <laughs> Maharaja Sir Beer Shumsher Jung Bahadur Rana. <laughs> Okay. And it goes on and on and on hmm. like that. Um, during World War One, more than 200,000 Gurkhas served in the British Army. I wasn't sure about this. I don't know if you guys know much about this or if you talked about it in your interview, Mark. I think all the Gurkhas come from Nepal. Is that correct? Um, so, yeah, my, my friend Milan, um, the reason he lives in the UK now is because his dad was a Gurkha. Uh, and it was kind of through right. that visa route that, uh, that he, he, he kind of came to live here. 
Um, and my understanding is that, you know, essentially from that kind of, was it 1816, from that treaty in 1816? It's kind of from then on, hmm. uh, Gurkhas started to get recruited into the uh, British armed forces. And as, I think it was, on, I think there had been Indian regiments of Gurkhas and they got transferred yes, to the British. Definitely. But essentially the British were like, these guys are pretty good at fighting. We would like them to fight for us rather than stabbing us with their knives. Yeah, so during World War One, more than 200,000 Gurkhas uh, served in the British Army. That's a lot of Gurkhas. That's so yeah, many. suffering approximately 20,000 casualties and receiving almost 2,000 gallantry awards. You, you know, considering it's World War One, that's actually surprisingly low level of casualties. 10%? Hmm. And they served at a lot of the the major battles. I believe they were present at Ypres, and um, wow. you know, in 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 a lot of the European, you know, at least a few of the major European mm. battles. Their their most famous appearance was in at uh, Gallipoli. But yeah, during this period, they enhanced their formidable reputation and became a very uh, widely respected part of the British army. Their battle cry was Ayo Gorkali, meaning the Gurkhas are here, wow. <laughs> which I believe if you know anything about the Gurkhas and you heard that, um, you know, heard somebody yelling the Gurkhas are here, you probably, you know, poop your pants a little bit. Yep. And their motto apparently is it's better to die than be a coward. Um, the Kukuri, which is a right. long curved yeah. knife, is is famously associated with the, with the Gurkhas. They all uh, carry one apparently. And legend has it that once a Gurkha draw, draws the Kukri, he must uh, draw blood. So if not from right. the enemy, then, you know, I, I think the idea is that they, they'll maybe cut their own hand or something. Um, maybe here would be a good spot to drop in another clip from Milan uh, on the Gurkhas and what they mean to Nepal today. So let's hear from him now. So Gurkhas has been part of uh, British army for like 150 years or something now. Since that right, war wow. we had, they were really, really impressed with our bravery. With you know, yeah, you know, you can even search in YouTube. You know, the selection, how British government, uh, how they select. I think they select like 100, 100 or 150. Yeah. You know, young guys. You know, they're like 17, 18, 19. I think they yeah. select that from Nepal, and most of the people who comes to army will be from villages. So they will be, you know, the way they train is like, you know, like commando proper. Yeah. They have to carry um, like a basket full of rocks and they have to run for, uh, I don't know how many miles. And it, it probably is up and down. It's not even like running around the, you know, floor pitch. It will be like right. all hill, hilly area with stones and everything. And they're, yeah, as I said, their most notable appearance was at Gallipoli where they were said to be among the first to arrive and the last to leave. And if you know anything about World War One history, you'll know that that was not a pleasant place to be. And they captured a cliff that later came, became known as Gurkha Bluff. After the war in December 1923, Britain and Nepal formally signed a Treaty of Perpetual Peace and Friendship. Oh, that's nice. And in 1924... Slavery was abolished. Oh, jeez. Sorry, what? Yeah. This was internal slavery, I assume. I guess. But didn't we also see something similar in Bhutan, if I remember correctly? Like, it was mm. like in the 1920s or 1930s or something. We were like, and then they abolished slavery. Yeah, I think the caste system lends itself to, uh, you know, some people are better yeah. than other people. I want, I, to the I, extent okay. of I didn't property. read anything about it, but I wonder if like that treaty and then the abolishment of slavery were related <laughs> If that was like a, you know, part oh. of the terms that uh, you guys have to get rid of slavery if we're going to sign a, an official treaty of peace and friendship. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, so following the outbreak of war in Europe, uh, World War II, the Kingdom of Nepal uh, declared war on Germany in September 1939. 
the Royal Nepalese army would go on to fight in Burma and Nepal would supply the empire with valuable aid and food throughout the course of the war. And the Gurkhas were also a formidable force throughout this conflict as well. Uh, a total of 250,000 Gurkhas served in 40 battalions in, al in almost all theaters. Wow. Uh, Gurkhas fought in Syria, North Africa, Italy, Greece, and against the Japanese in Burma, Northeast India, and also Singapore. Ding, ding, ding. Another 80 days episode. Um, Gurkha soldiers earned 2,734 bravery awards in the process and suffered around 32,000 casualties. And I have a quote here from Field Marshal Sam Meckinshaw, who was the Indian Chief of Army Staff from 1969 to 1973, who said, if a man is not afraid of dying, he is either lying or a Gurkha. I've heard that, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, in the late 1940s, after India gained its independence, voices for democracy began to grow in Nepal. Educated liberals, some of whom had participated in the struggle for Indian independence, soon began to push for the overthrow of the oppressive Rana regime. The Nepali Congress, uh, Nepali Congress's Liberation Army, a militant wing of the movement, was formed to overthrow the Ranas and began a series of clashes with the government, including strikes and public demonstrations. That name is very reminiscent of mm -hmm. the Indian uh, Congress yep. party as well, isn't it? This turmoil co uh, culminated in the king, a direct uh, descendant of the Shah line, fleeing his palace prison in 1950. His disappearance led to a brief armed conflict after which both sides agreed to some reforms. I think, uh, I hope that oh. uh, the Ranas could see the, the writing on the wall at that point. Um, did, did, did he come back and did the writing say, <laughs> <"Yeah."> <laughs> uh, So after a mutual agreement between the Ranas, the Nepali Congress and the King, a tripartite agreement was signed in Delhi known as the Delhi Accords. And some of the terms were... An elected constituent assembly will create a democratic constitution within two years. Uh, there will remain an interim cabinet or government of 10 ministers, of which five ministerial positions will be taken by the Nepali Congress. There will be no restriction to political organizations. And King Thiruvan will remain the king of Nepal and ultimate power lies in the monarch. So after about 100 years, um, the Ranas are, are relegated to a minor part of the government. They're not entirely gone, but... Um, less powerful than they were um back a hundred years previously and the the Shah line is restored to power. So uh that brings us up to around nineteen fifty one. Mark, do you want to tell us uh how did the uh, political you know changes affect Nepal? Uh, negatively <laughs> so <laughs> Wow. Okay. Uh, nineteen fifty one. Uh it's a whole new world, baby uh rana and congress they're all singing sonnets to each other and they're all happy happy as larry uh the great great tripartite mm. way to split up power and never no, no losers only winners um so <laughs> something uh, sounds way too optimistic here uh, yeah i know it, it's a mess frankly and right. uh, what's more is that kind of uh, more than frankly kind of any other period i've seen kind of from here on you see the involvement of india from the start like india has to keep kind of like running in and putting the wheels back on mm -hmm. the cart uh because literally they've just kind of been blown off it basically right so um uh in february 1951 the indian uh the indian army had to be invited in to put down a rebellion by a guy called k.i singh he was a, a congress fighter who hadn't received the we're all friends now kumbaya memo 
So he, he, he was continuing to fight the revolution. In April 1951, so two months later, India was again called in uh, due to a different revolt. And India was then called in in July when K.I. Singh escaped. Uh, so uh, it's, it's not a great start. The Ranas were also in a bit of trouble. Uh, they set up a group of uh, hardliner headbangers uh, called the Gorkha Dal. The, the main figure to note in the kind of history of the Congress Party is a guy called B.P. Koirala. Uh, I forget what the initials stand for, but generally he's just referred to as B.P. Corella. Uh, he was Congress leader. He arrested the leader of this kind of Rana militant group. Uh, the Ranas lost their heads altogether and stormed the prison where the guy was being kept. And they also attacked B.P. Koirala's house. B.P. then murdered one of them. <laughs> he shot one of them dead. I think I have uh, his brother or son in in. In your basement? Subsequent decades. Oh, his, his, oh. His, his brother is, is soon to make his, uh, his okay. appearance as well. Cool. This is a, um, I, I got to say, guys, so, this, uh, is a, le- this is a bloody history. Like, it's a lot of people just <laughs> straight not... up get murdered in this, in this, this episode. This is year one. But, but no cannibalism. No cannibalism yet, anyway. That's true. Yeah. Well, yeah. Slightly mm. disappointing. So anyway, uh, BP, who's like the leader of the main party now, uh, shoots one of the Rana ringleaders dead. Uh, the leader of this group of kind of militants then uh, runs out of the country and things kind of settle down just a little bit. Uh, the Ranas then kind of set up a political party to try to kind of further their aims in a slightly more, uh, less in a less violent way. Um, another thing to mention here is that, you know, like with everything throughout these 40 years, um, the parties I'm talking about fracture and defracture and really uh, and the fluidity of all this is really hard to track so i'm just not going to talk about it too much uh it's, it's very hard to keep it in your head straight as to who is with who and so on but i'm going to try and keep it kind of the, the main the main figures think of it like like a swan graceful on top which is my narration and on the bottom it's just like leathery straps flapping around in the wet um so <laughs> Uh, BP, uh, BP Corella, he was basically seen as too much of a divisive figure to be made prime minister. And the honour was instead given to his half-brother, MP Koirala. Uh, but as BP was still head of the party, his philosophical view was that, you know, MP is a party member, so needs to be doing what the party says. So the idea being that BP would rule kind of through through that back door. Um and no less than Indian intervention had to come in to broker an agreement between the two. Then K.I. Singh was released by some Congress revolutionaries in 1952, but he then fled to Tibet and didn't cause further trouble for a while. The king, Tribuvan, he decided that this all looks very messy and took power back from Congress, uh, partially at India's suggestion, um, and then MP Koirala split from his brother to set up his own party and Tribuvan was like oh this actually ruling is quite difficult and it's a bit <laughs> boring it? so uh, and I really don't like BP because he actually was head of the congress who you know was the cause of the revolution and so on so I'm gonna give it to his half brother instead now that the half brother had his own kind of fiddly little party um MP Koirala then scuttles along uh at the head of a shaky coalition for a few years until his coalition allies reject his budget and he resigns. Uh, so we're kind of in the early 50s here, which is also when a pretty significant event in the history of Nepal happens. Do you want to give us an idea of that, Luke? Yeah, so, um, you know, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but um, yeah, it's a it's a big historical event, I guess. It's a, 
the first summit of Everest happens. Um, a New Zealand beekeeper by the name of Edmund Hillary and uh, a prominent Sherpa who we haven't really mentioned the Sherpas very much. They're also a Nepali um, or Nepalese um, uh, yeah, institution, group. ethnic group, I guess. But um, yeah, they, they similar to the Gurkhas, I guess, are, are extremely good at what they do, but in, in the mountaineering field rather than the military field. And uh, had been helping yeah. various different European expeditions to try to summit Everest in the years previous. But yeah, uh, Nepal had opened up um, after the Second World War to uh, summits from the, the south side of the mountain. And yeah, in 1953, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay were the two uh, men to summit Everest first. And yeah, that's uh, that's certainly a, what do you say, like a, a, a significant moment in the history of, of Nepal and also in the, you know, in the history of the British Empire. And, and the world, to be fair, you know, pe people climb the highest thing in the world for the first time. It's, for sure. Um, yeah. And we also have a clip here from Mark's interview with Milan, where he discusses the importance of Sherpas to modern day Nepal. So we'll drop that in here. Mount Everest, you know, that's like a, like, you know, people ask you, you know, where are you from? You're from Nepal. And they will, they, they will ask you, mm, where is it? And then you can say, it's where Mount Everest is. Like, it represents the yeah. whole country. It's like identity, yeah. you know, for Nepalese people. Yeah. And I, I think in UK, in general, you can say, uh, you know, Gurkhas. And then people would know in UK, but maybe in US, yeah. they wouldn't know what Gurkhas is. And then you can say, yeah, where yeah. Mount Everest is. And then they would know, because it's the tallest mountain, yeah. highest mountain peak. So, if you want to go to you know, every, where Everest is, you know, it's very expensive. Like you mentioned, it's only for rich people because yeah. you have to apply for, apparently you have to apply for certificate. You have to, you can't just go there by yourself. You need to have a proper yeah. team. You need to hire Serpas. So it is expensive, but I think it's like once in a lifetime kind of thing, you know, tourism, it's such, it could be such a big thing and it's already a big thing in Nepal. It's a very, very big scope for Nepalese people, Serpas, you know. Apparently, they do so much work, you know, carry all the loads and, you know, make yeah, sure yeah. your people are safe, you know. But then they don't they don't get, you know, good pay. They are yeah. putting their life in danger, you know. Maybe there is no insurance in Nepal like in here, you know. I think what SEPA does, you know, it needs to be valued. It needs to be you know, considered as a, you know, brave job. And, you know, they need to be, I think they should be paid good amount in a good handsome amount so where are we we're, we're around 1955 um and uh, king tribuvan he's out you're out baby uh tribuvan is done he i believe he he, he he straight up dies and he's replaced by king mahendra and king mahendra he kind of redefines this relationship this shaky relationship between the parties and the monarchy um a Rana group was put into power oh. by Mahendra uh, and they, they kind of took a different political tack. They tried to pivot away from India, um, not with a lot of success, but as you remember, you know, India had to come in every kind of six weeks to basically fix Nepal and th this did, wasn't a great look in the Rana's view. So they kind of tried to move towards China. Uh, the Rana group lasted for about two years and then were replaced by the United Democratic Party led by K.I. Singh. <laughs> Uh, much like Great. yeah, that, that guy who was like running around and stuff uh, much like Wycliffe Sean he was gone by November basically one of the things that K.I. Singh did that made him very unpopular was he tried to suspend all elections mm. which will do all it right. hmm. um, uh, one of the reasons he was kicked out by, by November that year 
in this uh, country oh, that's been democratic for what 10 years like 20 minutes yeah <laughs> right um, yeah but all the parties came out in general protest and pushed for new elections uh mahendra the king he granted them elections for a parliament but a parliament that would be advisory to the council of the king not a kind of constituent assembly mm. not a full parliament right um there was a new constitution which gave ultimate authority to the king. So Congress won uh, 37%. So they were the biggest party, but not a majority. And BP was invited in to form a government. Uh, Mahendra didn't really like BP either. Um, but BP carefully managed the kind of India versus China issue. Um, particularly contentious at the time as the Dalai Lama had just fled Tibet. Oh, yeah. Um, and throughout this period, you see BP and others kind of take a little bit from China take a little bit from India, trying to kind of balance the obvious influence of their their enormous neighbors. Uh, but then they would generally follow whatever India was looking for. Right? It was kind of, you know, it's like take nine things from India, take one thing from China, just to kind of keep, keep, keep there to be a bit of a mix. MP Koirala rejoined the Congress party and then left again to found another opposition party. Uh, great fraternal relationship. In 1960, what happened was there was a minor local skirmish, which had a kind of an ethnic element and had some party elements it was quite complicated um but it created enough of a general stink around party politics that mahendra arrived back from a world tour and there was refugees kind of moving around nepal and he arrested bp and pretty much everybody else according to an analyst uh, called chatterjee for king mahendra nepal was an idea and none but he could realize what it was destined to be so mahendra used this as an excuse to kind of clear everybody out um, the Congress Party were kind of looking at this kind of, you know, they were being washed away and they were fearful that if they did anything to resist it, they would be accused of, you know, resisting the will of the king and would be done away with. So it was like a weird catch-22 where they kind of didn't want to be seen to be defending themselves in case they would be accused of violence in that way. It's, yeah, it was slightly strange philosophy, but it meant they got pretty much washed away by the, the broad sweeping hand of Mahendra. Also, just mentioned kind of the economic situation in the 1950s, 87 percent of Nepalese men were looking for seasonal employment away from their homes, both in kind of India and further further afield. Uh, and a lot of Indians moved into Nepal in this period as well, a lot of them without documentation. Hmm. So it was often difficult to tell whether a person in Nepal was Nepalese or Indian uh, because they just didn't have any papers. And as the decades would roll on, Nepalese people would move to the Middle East, Japan, Korea, move all over the world. So this is kind of the beginning of the uh, Nepalese exodus uh, to to everywhere, frankly. And there was a lot more aid beginning in the 1950s. The kind of the Cold War was kicking off. So both Russia and the U.S. were kind of throwing in aid to anybody who would, would accept it. The U.S. pushed to help with construction projects with a five-year bridge building plan targeting 70 bridges in the first two years one bridge was built over the first five years. Hmm. India would help on infrastructure, uh, but would generally only do so where it helped India, particularly with regards to construction of dams, which would also lead to siphoning off lots and lots of delicious, lovely water for irrigation. Uh, in one project, India took 5 million uh, acres worth of irrigation, whereas Nepal t- got only 343,000 acres of irrigation. Wow. So... Pretty unequal development. Right. Um, I mentioned before about how development sometimes followed kind of stereotypical lines. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to name the the stuff that was given and then I'm going to maybe you can guess the country. I don't know. Maybe that might be a bit long winded, but I'll I'll name the stuff and then I'll name the country. 
So a shoe factory, uh, a paper mill, and a sugar factory. Practical, kind of valuable stuff, but, you know, a bit bit basic. R- China. Oh, that's, that's, China. That's who gave yeah. that. Uh, a hospital, a cigarette factory, and crucially, an agricultural tool factory. Cuba? Russia. Soviet Russia. Mm. Yes. Um, oh. A program for getting cheese from yak's milk. Switzerland. Switzerland. Yes. <laughs> nice. Uh, a hydroelectric development. Um, U.S. Uh, Norway. Oh, yes. Uh, nice clean energy yeah. and a a Nepalese eaten plus resettling Gurkhas from Britain. The U.K. Uh, that was Britain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, GDP growth in sixties and seventies was pretty poor, um, and just economically, Nepal isn't developing. In 1962 specifically, there was an Indian-backed guerrilla campaign. Uh, and this was partially because the Chinese had agreed a road-building deal with Nepal on the Tibet border. And as a result of this, 77 insurgents died, 31 Nepalese military. Not a huge amount of people, but uh, it was it was a big event in Nepal. And then China went to war with India, which I actually kind of didn't know. Uh, so Nepal ended up returning to Indian influence. Yeah, something I want to drop on. in here just at the end of 1962 was was when the flag was adopted um the nepalese and what flag, a flag uh yeah is the world's only non-quadrilateral flag uh that acts as both the state flag and the civil flag of a, of a sovereign nation hmm. uh if you haven't seen it uh it's definitely in our show notes right now so you can flick over to the notes uh we always include the flag but i think most people are going to be familiar with this flag it's it's essentially sort of like two triangles on top of one another it's it's yeah. non-quadrilateral is a is fancy speak for not a rectangle um, or a square or a square i guess because so, yeah switzerland is a square right mm-hmm. and vatican as well yeah but um it is a simplified combination of two single pennons or pennants known as a double pennon Crimson red is a symbol of bravery and also represents the color of the rhododendron, which is Nepal's national flower. Oh. And the blue wow. border is the color of peace. I always thought white was the color of peace, but uh, apparently mean, in Nepal, Nepal, blue is the color of peace. Um, and up until um, sort of the mid-60s, the flags, emblems, the sun and the crescent moon had human faces. Uh, but they were removed that. Yeah, to modernize the flag. I they were weird. Yeah, yeah, the um, I actually looked this up because I wasn't I wasn't uh, familiar, and I assumed for some reason that the fl- the the faces on the sun and moon would be smiling, but they're just kind of just hanging out. They just have very they're neutral expressions. Faces, like, um, they're literal oh, moon oh, yeah, faces. They're, they're sort like of weird, disinterested. Yes, yeah, yeah, they're they're very neutral faces. The inclusion of the celestial bodies indicates Nepal's permanence. And the hope that Nepal will enjoy the same longevity as the sun and the moon. Like I kind of don't like how the the diagonal lines aren't parallel to each other. It's quite jarring. Yeah, it's a bit of an odd shape, definitely. And it has occasionally, well, more than occasionally, but uh, often been been used in the wrong way. So, like, I think the most common oh, instance dear. of that is is when it's placed on a white background. Um, hmm. You know, oh. to make it fit onto That's like a, a rectangular a flag. Uh, flag, yeah. And apparently during a 2018 visit of the Prime Minister of India, uh, versions of the flag with the incorrect shape and geometrical proportions was flown by officials, which caused outrage on social media. I mean, come on. Um, you, you've got a border with them. Yeah. It's, it's a famous flag. It's yeah. famously a weird flag. 
it's a it's a very weird flag and the uh fun fact do you guys know there is one other flag it's actually the flag of a u.s state which is non-quadrilateral i didn't know this until i was looking up this flag but uh do, do either of you guys have any idea what that might be was there a triangular one it's not triangular it's a swallowtail flag so it, Sorry, it sort of tapers now? and then it has a sort of like two points at the end hmm. oh. who was who that it is the state flag of Ohio. Huh. And Ohio? It is, really? Yeah, and it's a very interesting looking flag. It's it's it's, it's got kind of like the traditional red and white stripes and then a triangle pointing to the right-hand side of the flag where it narrows with stars in it and then a circle with a, a white circle surrounding a red circle. But I've never seen that flag before. It's 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 a very interesting looking flag. Um but uh, yeah, not to be overshadowed by Nepal. No, uh, that's which, weird. That's yeah. a really weird flag. It is. It is. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't mind that one. What do you guys think of the Nepal flag? I'm a fan. Uh, I mean, a it's fan. instantly recognizable. It reminds you that like you didn't need to. They don't all need to be triangles or squares. That's weird that that's become the thing. And I'm all on board with Nepal doing their own thing. Yeah, I just all find right. it a bit unsatisfying. I think if the diagonal lines were parallel to each other, I think I'd like it more. Yeah, I, they, they I, had me at not a rectangle. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I'm I'm gonna give it like a six flags out of ten. But because that's like twelve flags because it's two flags stuck together. Yeah. So. <laughs> True enough. I think it's a, I think it's a little bit of a hipstery flag mm. in terms of like if this is your favorite flag, it's it's sort of you're like an easy off. answer. Yeah. It would look great on a spear when you're riding a horse into a valley. Yeah. It definitely would. Yeah, it's just flying at the UN. It's out of place. That that's the thing is that like I don't know it it I think it underlines how how boring and formulaic a lot of these kind of instruments of state are mm. like uh, how it was a like I I didn't realize you couldn't have a national anthem without words in it there's loads of them uh, oh yeah <laughs> but like Spain is no but words. it's exactly there's, there's there's loads of them that, that that do it but this is like the equivalent this is like the the national anthem with no words except that they're the only one that's done it and yeah, yeah it's, it's an okay flag but like it you know just the very fact that they've kind of stepped up a little bit i'm that hipster all right i'm that hipster that likes this flag just because it's different. all right okay anyway uh moving moving swiftly on oh yeah uh, so through the 1960s mahendra's there he's kind of got all this new power he's kind of swept away the political parties he creates this whole new system that relies on these local councils called panchayats and gradually kind of moves things in his preferred direction, banning the political parties, etc. Uh, he tried to retain some form of distance from India and even released uh, BP Koirala, uh, who went into exile in India, as I recall. Um, so Mahendra then dies in 1972 and he passes the kingy baton slash crown to his son, Birendra. Um, one big issue that Berendra had to deal with right off the bat was that there were CIA-backed Tibetan rebels attacking the Chinese army from northern Nepal. There's so, much, there's um, so many bits to that sentence. Just, I'm just going to let it <laughs> well, Yeah, I'm not going to go into any more detail on it, frankly. Like, he like had to send in Dal- the Nepalese army. Dalai Lama symp- sympathetic crack yeah, it's, team. It's the early but... 70s, and it's, it's before Nixon, I think, opened up relations with China. So they were trying to keep a bit of, you know, internal strife going in uh, in China. But obviously that's not a great look for Nepal, who are trying to be kind and neutral in every direction. So they may have kind of let the CIA in 
or maybe have turned a blind eye or maybe just weren't equipped to kind of block them out. And this was kind of happening on their watch. They, they had to address it, really, because China would have been most displeased. Anyway, that, that was sorted. Uh, BP Koirala comes back to Nepal in 1976 because I think things were hotting up in India around that time. Uh, he was immediately arrested, but then released again in 78. Uh, the Congress party, which was you know the, his party, had at this point split into two groups. But... Um, the the Congress Party, the kings kept pitting Congress versus the communists because both of them were quite populist. Both kind of en- would entertain a bit of violent action here and there, and the idea was a bit of divide and conquer, really. Um, and India, China. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, that's fair Roughly. enough as well. But I, I I guess the point with that is that uh, there wasn't just one set of communists. Um, Congress split into two parties. Guess how many parties the communists split into? I. I, I will cover that in detail in the 90s. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, okay. dozens. By this point, well, at this point, it was only seven. Oh, okay. uh, so there were seven separate communist parties. So I'm, some of them were pro China, some of them I think were less pro China, which was part of the reason for the, all the splits. Um, one of these communist factions started killing people uh, via assassination, and uh, Berendra wasn't against having the communists and congress kind of sniping at each other it was very convenient also to mention even though there weren't political parties allowed it was more kind of you know you know what's not 1941 germany it's more kind of i don't know vietnam or maybe like an albania or something like that like people are aware that it's a weird system and they don't love it and it's not a very you know efficient authoritarian state um so there's resistance but like it's you know like it's it's just the current system. It's not uh, it's it's not some terrible injustice that everyone's you know, really really concerned about. Until uh, in 1979, protests start ramping up. Uh, there's an execution of potential royal assassins. The police start cracking down on these protests, and that gets people really freaked out. Uh, the Shah in Iran had just fallen, so Berenger was himself seemed a bit kind of vulnerable. Uh, so he announces a referendum on. Mm, do you want multi-party democracy or just reforms to the kind of panchayat local council system and this kind of more meager reform Could package? Could you unpack uh, that panchayat thing briefly? I read about it in my book. Uh, I, I don't think there's any more detail we need to kind of go into except that power was distributed away from any kind of national assembly yeah. to more kind of local councils and that created a power base all of its own okay which the monarchy could then rely on because there was like this big distance between the scale of power the local councils held and the royal level of power there's no parties but there's essentially like local councils running towns yeah and villages and the local councils aren't political parties but but they become they become themselves like a political class almost there's a huge incentive for them to keep that system going because that's the power that they have it's just not on a political party basis yeah uh, and I'd imagine probably you'd see a lot of ranas and so on kind of rising to the top of these little mini fiefdoms mm-hmm. and so on uh, outside of a political party structure. So BP Koirala dies in 1982, leaves his cronies in charge and his party who start civil ag- agitation. Uh, the communists start setting off bombs in a fun move. Uh, they kill some staff in a hotel owned by one of the MPs. Uh, and the 1980s starts to just kind of go from bad to worse mm-hmm. generally. Nepal fully transitions from being a net food exporter to an importer, partially down to the population surging. Uh, they added 3.5 million people on top of the 15 million people they already wow. had in 1980. Uh, foreign aid is making up 40% of government spending. Um, 
a note in the Gurkhas. Uh, in 1990, there were still about kind of 7,400. And the 21,000 former Gurkhas uh, that were drawing pensions, just on the basis of it being kind of foreign exchange, were actually a pretty significant contributor to the to Nepalese economy, um, mm. which in itself says how bad the economy is mm. at generating its own revenue. Things further disimprove. We have mm, negative developments. That sounds like most of your section, Mark. We have negative developments. <laughs> it, 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 it is just getting worse and worse. Okay. From 1986 to 88, a Nepali-speaking minority in Darjeeling tried to create a breakaway kind of sub-state within India, uh, which India was not very keen on. But because there was a lot of, uh, and there continue to be a lot of Nepali speakers in Darjeeling, mm. India was very suspicious that Nepal was behind it. And that Nepal had this kind of idea of getting back these territories that they they lost from the kind of the, the Gorkhal you know, dynasty. So India was really suspicious. Nepal was also being pushed out of, um, sorry, Nepalese people were also being pushed out of Assam. So there's a bit of kind of ethnic cleansing happening there as well by the Indians and other territories. Nepal also bought some Chinese weapons. Uh, and Nepal also then took the unilateral move of forcing Indians to get a permit before they could come and work in the Kathmandu Valley. Oh. That was basically the last straw. Uh, and in March, India wanted a comprehensive trade and transit deal to clear all this up. And Nepal dragged their feet a little bit. So India dragged their feet in allowing any imports at all into Nepal, blockading the whole country, uh, including kerosene and basically everything else that they needed. Oh, wow. Initially, the Nepalese public blamed India. But, you know, that only lasted for so long. And they were then kind of pivoting towards being really angry with the government. Also, again, contextually, the Berlin Wall falls. Mm. So that gave people a lot of crazy dreams. Mm. And with that in mind, the Communist Congress finally kind of came together and decided to bury the hatchet and both push for parliamentary democracy, uh, which kind of is how 1989 ended. I'm going to leave things there on the mm-hmm. cusp of transition. All right, I think it's time for another break. And then Please. we'll dash towards modern day. All right, Joe, your turn. Everyone came together. The Nepalese Congress and the United Left Front, which was many, many, many parties. um, Right. They ushered in parliamentary democracy through what was called the People's Movement or People's Movement 1, depending on how you uh, count your People's Movements. So, yeah, as I said, parties have been illegal, but they kind of persisted through the period you were talking about, Mark. Um, yeah. And there been lots of agitation for land reform. Agitating for land reform was very, yeah. was very in because we still had a feudal system, which is bonkers in the 1990s. So some highlights of the People's Movement, you had up to 200,000 people marching in Kathmandu. Basically, the police gave up defending government property. Apparently, the Prime Minister's car was trashed by the crowds. Uh, on April 8th, King Burendra Bir Bikram Shah, the, the current monarch who's been around for a bit now, he lifted the ban on political parties um, uh-huh. in response to, you know, a quarter of a million people in his in his garden. 
and in November he would accept the constitution drafted by the People's Movement, giving executive power to an elected government. Mm-hmm. So, yay, democracy. It's going to be perfect. Everyone's going to get along. I'm really worried. In May 1991, Nepal had its first parliamentary elections in nearly 50 years. Nepali Congress won 110 out of 205 seats and formed the first elected wow. government in 32 years. It was led by uh, Girija Prasad Kerala, or G- GP okay. Kerala, who I think is another nice. brother of BP Kerala. Oh, right. Uh, he was a veteran of the labor movement and had like, run strikes and mills and things and had been helped out by his brother right. in, in that and brought into politics. Um, I'm not particularly clear on the specifics, but there seems to have been quite a bit of widespread corruption in the, the Congress governments oh my um and they were quite pro india and again I, i've been reading from multiple sides so this may well have been more of a, a communist point of view but basically congress was seen as pro india and in, in that regard in in terms of india being expansionist and you know india had annexed sikkim and india wants to annex us too uh, either economically or completely Actually, yeah. yeah. Um, and so there would be the view that Congress is quite pro-Indian um, and obviously the communists less so. Uh, the Communist Party of Nepal at this point called the Communist Party of Nepal Unity Centre in brackets. Catchy. It had split from the United Left Front making it less united and it decided to be a secret party. What? planning for a, quote, protracted armed struggle on the route to a new democratic revolution. Oof. But set up the United People's Front of Nepal to contest elections. If you were thinking... So they have a secret party and a non-secret yep. party. The secret party is the and one that's front. planning the revolution and the, the non-secret one is the one that goes to get elected? Is, is to that... stop the filthy whatevers from... Having too so much this power. is a, a two-front war, basically. Is like they're, This would be they're... not atypical in revolutionary communism. But anyway, um, if, you, if, you, if you hear United People's Front of Nepal and are thinking of the life of Brian, you're not alone. There are very... There's, the, the articles on these party splits are, are exhausting in terms of how many mm. fronts and people's fronts yeah. and national people's fronts and communist... There's, I think, three or four different communist parties at any given time. So that's going on in the background, but for the moment, the Congress, Nepali Congress, with GP Kerala are leading. In 1992, there's a general strike called on April 6th by the Joint People's Agitation Committee, which I believe includes the Communist Party Nepal Unity Centre, but is also other people. Um, In response to economic hardship. Violence flares between agitators trying to enforce a lights out kind of thing where they want everyone to turn their lights off for a night. I don't know why. Um, right. Kind of general strike thing. And the police clash with them. There's clashes at a, a beer hospital at Pulchok Police Station where two are killed. There's a rally in Tundikel, which is attacked by the police. It turns into a riot with maybe 14 people killed. It's a little unclear. Wow. The National Telecoms building set on fire. You know, just general chaos and mayhem. General mayhem, yeah. And in the absence of official land reform uh, throughout the country, activists start taking this into their own hands and just kind of expropriating 
feudal land for the okay. landless. They're obviously repressed by the government in various forms and many are killed or radicalised. All of this leads up to 1996 where um, the Communist Party of Nepal Maoist in brackets who have split from the Communist Party of Nepal United Centre Oh dear God. They begin a civil war with the government uh, which is led by Sherbad or Daiba at the moment. And uh, this is also called the Maoist insurgency, if you don't think civil war is the correct word. But it spanned a decade. Uh, 16,000 people would die in total, including insurgents, civilians, police, everything. Uh, Hundreds of thousands internally displaced in rural Nepal. Oh boy. And um, yeah, it began with seven coordinated attacks across the country. So it was quite a widespread insurgency. And... We get to a point where the Maoists control a lot of rural Nepal, but the official government never lost control of the urban centres. Right. So it's this sort of strange two-system situation. Key leaders were Dr. Badaram Batarai and uh, Pushpa Kamal Dahal, who was known as Prachanda, because you have to have a nickname to be a communist leader. That's important. And basically they wanted to remove the influence of foreign capital, particularly India and the UK and the US imperialists, as it were. They wanted to abolish right. feudalism and redistribute land, and they had dozens of demands that they issued at the start of the war, kind of saying, live up to these demands and we'll stop. Loads of people went abroad to work in the Middle East, and that income became mm-hmm. a big part of the economy, the kind of remittances. And obviously tourism didn't do great during the uh, bloody civil war. Oh, boy. But um, primarily it was the police. So this is a complexity I only really got my head around today that it seems the police were controlled by the government but the Royal Army controlled by King Berendra didn't take much of a role in suppressing the Maoists yeah. and it seems like there was some understanding between the royalty and the communists because okay. the royalty the people who supported the royalty were nationalists pro-independence the government was quite pro-Indian and pro-Western. And the Maoists were pro-Chinese to some extent, but less than they used to be because China had started to change. But they were pro the people of Nepal, if not necessarily nationalists. So it seems like the, the at times the royalty and the Maoists had more in common than the royalty and the government, which overly complicates the whole civil war situation. It basically led to you having rural areas ruled by the Maoist party structures with their own army, their People's Liberation Army and so on. In the middle of all of this, something insane happened. Um, In 2001, the official story is that Prince Dipendra went on a drunken shooting spree Mm. at the royal palace, killing his father, the king, the queen and various other members of the royal family, including siblings. Uh, and eventually turned a gun on himself. So by law, he, he according to the law, he became the king while in a coma and died soon after. But, and I remember this happening. I remember that the Me news, too, yeah. 2001, and it was just sort of completely unexpected. Yeah. Again, continuing in a, a, a very, you know, a very bloody history, as we've already mentioned. That's Yeah, well, wow. it's, 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 it reminds me of some of the 19th century massacres but the pendra was eaten educated 
the story that came out soon. Initially, it was said that an automatic gun had gone off by itself and exploded and killed everyone. Then right. it changed to he had gone on a shooting spree, as I've just described, which seems to be the, the most commonly held belief, possibly because he wanted to marry an Indian woman who he loved and who his mother opposed. It seems like an overreaction, though. It does. And it also looks like... It... The, the Wikipedia page lists a, a set of firearms, which does suggest like he had a lot of guns. A, yeah, yeah. There's like an M16. He had an MP5. Mm-hmm. He had a Spaz shotgun, which is like an automatic shotgun, and a Glock 19. Yeah, he was a very well armed prince. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the another th- suggestion is that he opposed constitutional monarchy and thought the king should be absolutists. But there are also suspicions about who got killed and who didn't get killed. So. The subsequent king, Ganendra, wasn't there at the party. And his son, Prince Paris, who was a well-known drunkard and had uh, had committed at least three hit-and-run oh killings God. and couldn't what? be prosecuted due to royal immunity, sort of isn't well-liked by the public. He managed to why. avoid being, uh, being injured at all. And... As I was saying earlier, there's this letter by um, by Dr. Bathory, the, one of the leaders of the, the Maoist movement, to a Canterbury newspaper, which I think led to many of the people involved in publishing that newspaper getting arrested, which is always an interesting outcome, that described this as the new cot massacre. And I think the title of the letter was Don't Allow Those Who Benefit From The New Cot Massacre To Go Unquestioned. So his belief was that as I say, the, he claims they had a lot in common with the, the nationalist king and kind of called on nationalists to rally around the Maoists to oust the now corrupt new king. So it's basically the JFK moment, JFK assassination of Nepal. Yeah. You can't go back from that. Nobody will ever be convinced of the version that doesn't suit their, their narrative. Mm. Right. But either way, they had a new king. Um, there was a ceasefire that year and uh, attempted peace talks which didn't really work out 2002 was the most bloody year of the war um, and the king uh, cancels elections declares a state of an emergency deposes the prime minister and appoints uh, Lukendra Bahar Chand as prime minister and in 2005 the king Ganendra proclaimed democracy and progress contradict one another in pursuit of liberalism we should never overlook the important aspect of our conduct namely discipline he seized control of government and put politicians under house arrest there were some internal disputes between the leaders of the Maoist movement at this time but they they seemed to clear them up to some extent and in response to this seizing of power the India and the UK cut off support to, to Nepal China, on the other hand, sent them lots of arms to aid the king in his uh, authoritarianism. Sweet. So they're, you'd think that China would side with the Maoists, but um, I don't know. It's 2005, so. I guess they just want peace on their border. Get, get it stamped out kind of thing. Yeah. A seven-party alliance formed from all of the political parties who had been Sounds secure. suspended. Um, it was representing most of the 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 people who should be in parliament basically they had the support of the Indian government 
and they managed to come to a compromise with the Maoists about how to progress towards democracy and renouncing violence. Wow. So um, the key roadblock on the way to democracy was now identified as the king. So in 2006, there were uprisings which gave way to peaceful pro-democracy protests or anti-monarchy protests, depending who you ask. Uh, the army did kill 19 protesters and imprisoned 400, and this was kind of labelled as, as Jan Anderland II, the People's Movement II. King Gyanendra suggested returning control to the Seven Party Alliance. Seven Party Alliance said no, and the Maoists also said no to that. So we restored the House of Representatives, and there was a Karela was made Prime Minister again. The UN were brought in to monitor a peace process, and the Maoists agreed to, to play by those rules and to respect the elections to a, a constitutional assembly if they were free and fair. An act on May 18th. 2006 stripped the king of many powers, removed Hinduism as a state religion, made it a secular state, transferred the army to civilian control, uh, arrested many royalist ex-ministers and replaced the previous constitution. And a comprehensive peace accord was signed, ending the civil war between the Seven Party Alliance and the Maoists. In 2008, this new dispensation, uh, the monarchy was abolished ending 240-year dynasty, and a federal republic was founded. And we would end up with Maoist prime ministers um, and Congress prime ministers going forward from there. And even more recently, the People's Liberation Army started being integrated into the Nepalese army with the option to either retire or be rehabilitated and brought into the mainstream army. And so now, I suppose what's happening in more recent times is as the Maoists embrace constitutional politics, you're starting to get ethnic identity politics rearing up, where people who had been revolting against the status quo with the Maoist movement now feel abandoned and they're revolting against the new status quo if they're from minority ethnic groups in rural Nepal. So all is not settled, but um, the war on the scale it was on has ended in recent in the last decade and things are moving towards a a different direction uh yeah i mean i tell it's milan about it and he was saying that you know he's not a big politics buff or anything like that but he, that politics does seem to be maybe heading in a at least a slightly more positive direction that there is a little bit of hopey changey vibes at the moment uh i guess is maybe now a good time to pass over to milan and kind of hear a little bit about kind of the the culture of of nepal and and just his observations about uh, modern day nepal sure uh i think it's a problem in nepal like most people yeah the working class group let's say between you know 19 to whatever upper upper class level is of the age that that people they tend to leave uh, nepal and go abroad to us right uk Australia, for example, Canada, mm-hmm. and they go there. Uh, their family will stay behind in Nepal, and then you know they work, they study, and they send money back. I think yeah, remittance, which is money sending from abroad to Nepal, is like one of yeah. the biggest income now for Nepal. Like oh, wow. okay. even uh, people uh, living uh, to you know these um, mid middle eastern countries, Qatar, Kuwait. Mm-hmm. Lots of people they left um, at the time when uh, Qatar won the World Cup and they had to build a stadium. Uh, yeah. So many many right. yeah, yeah. Nepalese worker they left. Yeah, at the time uh, and 
I think still, I don't know, but I think most people they want to go up abroad and do something and make their life. And then yeah. what happens is like most of my for for us, you know, ex um, British armies, uh, son and daughter. It's it was easy yeah. for us. You know, we had a pot. Yeah, we had a. Yeah, we we could see everything clear. You know what we could do, what we want to do. But for most yeah. people, they what they want to do is they want to go abroad, they settle. Like most mm-hmm. of my friends from school and college, I think most of them now they are in either US or Australia. And really? basically, yeah. what they do is they finish their study, I think, there, and they start apply for work working visa or something, and they start working, and slowly, slowly, they also move the family. You know, yeah. To uh, Australia or US, because uh, I think uh, you know that's why I always tell everyone in U- UK. You know, you should try and go to developing countries and try and see the difference in lifestyle. You know, like so many things yeah. in UK we take for granted, like for sure. water. Oh, we have enough water here. You know, you can just waste it. You can take sour yeah. twice a day. So basically, uh, back in Nepal when I was there uh, in two thousand four five, we used to have like electricity. Like yeah. couple of hours in a day. Yeah. So it's like it would be a couple of hours in a day. So within that hour, couple of hours, you have to do everything. You know, uh, like yeah, people with money they used to have this uh, meter, uh, mm-hmm. motor. Sorry, motor. And they used to take the water from underground to their tank upstairs, and you know they get the water throughout for throughout right. the day, and also, yeah, things like that. And uh, over here, everything is so easy. Everything is so fine, but. Easy, even the gas, you know, here everything is you, you just have to turn it on and you have a gas. But in the part, you, you physically you need to carry a cylinder, okay, so those yeah. are the things you know. The difference you will see in countries like UK, US, and compared to Nepal or other developing countries, you know, there's a big, big difference. Yeah. Just on various things, uh, no Olympic medals, uh, you know, they have played some football they have not won a lot of football uh lots of hydroelectric power but i think the main thing is that it's a very poor country uh the ci world Factbook calls it one of the least developed countries in the world but one quarter of its population living below the poverty line wow. uh heavily dependent on remittances thought to be as much as 30 percent of gdp mm. uh agriculture is the mainstay of the economy providing livelihood for two-thirds of the population but accounting for less than a third of gdp if wow. it's yeah i mean frequent earthquakes don't help either oh my god you mentioned yeah, like refugees it, in 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 assam and bhutan and stuff earlier that would often be in response to natural disasters the the downside of living in the current you know continually growing himalayan range i th- i think that the the one of the things you kind of need to kind of bear in mind that from you know the 50s onwards or even before then that the reason there's so much political you know, intrigue and so much uh, the revolution and constitution, all this kind of stuff is, is the underlying mood music is that things are getting worse. Mm. Things are getting worse for normal people. And that hasn't really changed all yep. that much. Uh, and that's that's the big kind of question mark for Nepal. How do we get out from under, you know, the problems that we have mm-hmm. and being sandwiched between two of the world's, you know, major powers isn't hasn't really helped them at all. One interesting piece of trivia I, I came across is that they use a different oh, yeah. calendar to everyone else. Um, yes. They really, use yeah. the Vikram Savat calendar, which confusingly is very similar to the AD yeah. calendar. It's only out by like 40 years. 60 or years. F- 56 like that, yeah. years. 
Right. So it began in 56 BC and is uh, an ancient Indian subcontinent calendar that was popular in Hinduism and Sikhism for like determining yeah. when certain religious festivals happen. It's kind of a quasi-lunar calendar, a bit like the Jewish calendar, I think, where they add in an extra month occasionally when needed to bring it back in line with the solar year. When I was chatting to Milan, he, he was talking about the, the festivals and so on. He, he felt bad that he was describing it in terms of, of like, you know, the months and so on that we would know. He was like describing it in those terms and not in the terms of the right. Nepalese calendar. He was like, oh, I've been here too long. It's like, okay. So it felt like a betrayal yeah. to say June. <laughs> well, yeah, he was like, what, what I'm saying feels like it doesn't make sense. It's, it'd be like, you know, if Christmas was a month. Like you know, Christmas yeah. is in December. You know, Christmas is just Christmas. It doesn't need to be like it. It's it's kind of confusing that way. No, there's all kinds of cool festivals. Um, loads of local deities, and there's a cart festival called Rath Jatra, which sounds cool. Where a big giant cart bearing a a bodhisattva is carried through the through a town. It sounds, which seems to have been adapted from a pre-Buddhist ritual and then just oh, okay. folded into Buddhism by the New Hours, which is kind of cool. Religion does that. But uh, yeah, it seems like a quite colourful and diverse mix of traditions and, and cultural things, which I don't think we have the necessary expertise to go into at length, but maybe we can find some cool photos. Yeah, so uh, as we said at the top of the show, we tried to keep this as concise as we possibly could. Um, and failed. And failed, yeah. But uh, thanks for sticking with us through this very abridged uh, history of Nepal. Thank you very much to Milan Rai for his contributions to this episode. And as always, thank you so much to our patrons who help to keep the show running. New patrons this month include Christian Sybast, Samuel Vaughan, Henry Trinder, Corianne Wilson, Ronan Perry, Carly Eager and Ryan Fink. Thank you all for your very kind and generous contributions to the show. If you'd like to support the show and uh, get your name shouted out on the show, you can throw a few uh, euros or dollars or, uh, rupees. Yep, or rupees our way uh, by visiting patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast to support us. You can find that link in the show notes also. Uh, in case you weren't aware, we're indie podcasters, so we produce a show in our spare time. And so your contributions really do help us to drive the show forward. However, if you would prefer to divert your money to a different cause, and there are many of those out there these days, then you can also support us by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That's free. Or yeah. simply <laughs> by telling a friend. Not if you didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, Keep it no, to yourself. No, not if you didn't like it, exactly. Just um, doing it. Joe, where can our fine listeners find out more about you? They can go to timetoburn.com and they'll get some links to other places they can find me there. And Mark? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at MarkBoyle86. And, and God help me if 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 my my current seclusion forces me into doing any typey, typey, typey type stuff, you can find me at uh, uh, Toner of Leak. Just Google Toner of Leak. I'm the only Toner of Leak. Yeah, we, we probably we, we probably should have mentioned at the top of this episode we're all in, in lockdown right now. Um, yep. So yeah, yep. it might be, might be tweeting or posting more often than, than not, depending on when this episode Either makes it to Either avoiding or recovering from COVID-19. Yes, yep. indeed. Yeah, you can find me at my website, LukeJKelly.com or on Twitter at the TheLukeJKelly. Thank you as ever for listening and we'll see you next time if we make it out of here alive. Oh dear God. <laughs> see you later. A la vida.